Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And when I split this podcast into cinematic editions and streaming editions, one of the reasons to do that was that the cinematic releases are much more time-sensitive than the streaming releases, which, by the nature, you can watch at any time. But it didn't quite occur to me that I might end up in a situation like this, where I've had three cinematic editions since the last time I released a streaming episode. A combination of the fact I've been watching a lot of films at the London Film Festival, both in the touring programme at the Watershed and as online screeners, the fact I've started the long and laborious process of relaunching this podcast as the Yay, Nay or Mer podcast, which hopefully will be coming in the new year. It means that a lot of the time I would have dedicated to recording about the streaming films I have watched has been taken up with those other things. So I have a severe backlog of stuff I have watched at home, and this episode is going to be very, very long, with seven streaming reviews to release. In this episode, I will be talking about the VOD releases, Alice Runs Away, also known as Alice Fades Away, a film about a battered housewife in the 1950s. There's also the allegorical female-fronted horror movie, Take Back the Night. On Netflix, we have the psychedelic Spanish film loosely inspired by The Wizard of Oz, Rainbow, and the quasi-Oscar-bait biopic of Marilyn Monroe, Blonde. On Amazon Prime Video, we have Lena Dunham's YA feminist novel adaptation, I guess is the best way to describe it, Catherine Called Birdie, and yet another film about the Thai cave rescue, this one from Ron Howard in 13 Lives. And finally, in this episode, we have the American independent film which was released directly onto Sky Cinema recently, The Immaculate Room. So, plenty to get to, and without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. VOD Reviews Alice Runs Away, or as it seems to be known in the US, Alice Fades Away, is the debut feature-length film from writer-director Ryan Bliss and stars Ashley Shelton as a young mother in the 1950s who escapes from her abusive husband, Tommy Beardmore, and tries to find sanctuary. And she seems to find it in a big house in the New England countryside run by Jay Potter. 
But her ex-husband's father, played by the fantastic character actor William Sadler, who you may recognise from things like The Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, and his excellent role as Death in the Bill and Ted movies. But William Sadler sends his other son, Timothy Seck, after Ashley Shelton. And once Timothy Seck finds her, things start getting very, very dangerous because Timothy Seck is kind of a psychopath. So can Ashley Shelton survive? Can she deal with the traumas she has been living with? And can she find a new place to belong in this house full of waifs and strays? Early on in this film, I started realising that I think writer-director Ryan Bliss is rather influenced by Terence Malick. There are a lot of scenes early in this film which I consider to be Malickian scenes, with portentous gazes at characters, seemingly improvised interactions between the characters on screen, and very poetic, arguably overly dramatic voiceovers. I think this film wants to be a little bit abstract, and honestly, I think it's a little bit too abstract for its own good. I think that Timothy Sack, this violent man who has been sent after Ashley Shelton, is her ex-brother-in-law. I think he is the son of William Sadler, but I can't say for sure. When Ashley Shelton shows up at this big manor house full of waifs and strays, she talks to the owner of the house, Jay Potter, and calls him uncle, but I am really, really unclear as to whether that is an honorific or whether that is actually her uncle. It is very, very notable that Ashley Shelton is desperate to get her son away from her abusive husband her son being played by Paxton Singleton, but once she arrives at the house, Paxton Singleton is no longer with her and the absence is keenly felt. And all of this gets kind of explained, but kind of not, by a series of flashbacks, which again are done in this very distant, abstract way. And it's pretty easy to figure out what's been going on with some of the specifics being a little bit murky, like is Timothy Sack actually her brother-in-law or not? And is Jay Potter actually her uncle or not? But the generalities of what is going on is pretty easy to understand, but all of it is being done in this very distant, very abstract way. And this, I think, was a deliberate choice. The way that Jay Potter talks about Ashley Shelton and whether or not he is her uncle, she did stay with him when she was younger. And he describes her as a very distant, uh, a somewhat troubled girl even then. So the character by design is supposed to be distant and detached. Which is fine narratively and dramatically. But visually and cinematically, that means there is something lacking in the film, and it's just too detached for its own good at the end of the day. 
there are some interesting themes here. I mean, this is set in the 1950s, and the idea of a woman running away, trying to find safety away from an abusive partner is interesting. There are several characters in this film who are traumatised from their experiences in the Second World War, not least of which Timothy Sack, this absolute psychopath who has been sent after her. He not only has been damaged by his experiences in the Second World War, he has been absolutely broken by his experiences in the Second World War. And so one of the other residents in this house in the middle of the New England countryside is an ex-soldier who is clearly traumatised by his experiences. He has nightmares and all that kind of stuff. And this is a safe haven. This is a sanctuary for him. There's a child in this house who has just been left there, has just been abandoned there, and has been taken in by this ad hoc family, this group of people. I mean, it's a little bit of a commune, a little bit of a backwards idyll kind of feel to it. Possibly even a proto-cult. I mean, I was kind of worried that that was the directions this was going, but it doesn't really go there. And this is a film which has some interesting ideas, some interesting images. Timothy Sack, once he does find Ashley Shelton, the woman he has been sent after, he starts using tactics which are straight out of a slasher movie. I mean, this is the 1950s, so it's a different visual language, but he starts using scare tactics and intimidation tactics which are directly out of a modern day slasher movie which is an interesting approach to take and there's also some interesting dramatic moments the actual incident i mean we keep on going back to the flashbacks of ashley shelton leaving her abusive husband Tommy beardmore and the final revelation as to the specifics of what happened it's a big dramatic moment which is fine but it rings absolutely false because of the characters involved. I do not believe that that character would do that thing in that way at that moment. It rings false. It doesn't have an authenticity to it. It feels like that moment was put in the film for dramatic purposes, for visual purposes, rather than for character purposes. And there's a disconnect there. And yeah, I think that's kind of what I feel about this whole film. It's too detached, it's too distant. I think this was a relatively simple story which has been stretched to feature length when it doesn't really need to be. It's been done in a very abstract way, jumping back and forward in time so frequently that it's actually quite difficult to keep track of in certain places. I think it's an okay idea which hasn't been executed particularly well and has been stretched to its breaking point and perhaps beyond its breaking point. I just don't think there's enough material here for a feature-length film and therefore we go to these same flashbacks over and over again and it kind of gets repetitive. So, yeah, an interesting attempt. I think there's some good stuff here, but at the end of the day, I just don't think Alice Runs Away is worth it. You can find it on VOD platforms, but honestly, I don't think it's worth it. And for me, 
Alice Runs Away is a nay. Next up, we have the allegorical horror film Take Back the Night, which is the feature-length debut of writer-director Gia Elliott and was also co-written by the star of the film, Emma Fitzpatrick. And Emma Fitzpatrick plays a young woman living in Los Angeles who is an artist and goes by the name of Jane Doe. And I think that is a deliberate choice, which I'll be getting back to. And Jane, after her first big gallery show, is walking back late at night. There's no cabs to be found. She can't get a signal on her phone to call an Uber. So it's late at night in the warehouse district of Los Angeles. And she's trying to get home. And she is attacked. She goes to the hospital and is examined and is also interviewed by a detective played by Jennifer Lafleur. But Jane's sister, Angela Gulner, comes in and doesn't really help the situation by assuming that Emma Fitzpatrick has done something wrong and says, don't say anything until we guess a lawyer and everything. And then the detective says, no, actually, your sister was attacked. Why do you think she might need a lawyer? And that's the first thing that indicates that despite being attacked by a monster, or at least she claims she was attacked by a monster, Emma Fitzpatrick is not believed. The police woman, Jennifer Lafleur, and eventually also a journalist who also happens to be the policewoman's girlfriend, played by Sibongile Umlambo, who was also one of the producers of the film. Everything is stacking up against this woman who is not believed. So she decides to take things into her own hands and goes hunting for the monster which attacked her. But can she survive and can she actually take down this dangerous creature, this dangerous entity, stalking the streets of Los Angeles? There's many, many great aspects of this film, Take Back the Night. I found it really, really interesting that the film opens with Emma Fitzpatrick walking out of a police station and the voiceover is Emma Fitzpatrick being forced to take a polygraph test. And the questions that this polygraph test is asking her emphasise the fact that she is not being believed. It is emphasising the fact that she's probably making it up. She's an artist. She probably just wants attention. Did you do this for the publicity? We know you've been admitted into a psychiatric hospital when you were a teenager. We know you've had substance abuse issues in the past. They're using any excuse they can to dismiss this claim, to ignore this claim. And this voiceover is so pervasive, uh, and you can see that Emma Fitzpatrick is really, really upset by this. 
And then we flash back to the actual night of the incident, and we see, you know, yes, she was attacked by this entity, this thing surrounded by flies and just a black mist on the screen. I mean, very, very cheap. I mean, this is an incredibly low-budget film, but, you know, I think it, it, it does it reasonably well. I mean, the two things that tend to not be great in low-budget films are the sound and the cinematography. And Gia Elliott was her own cinematographer, and yeah, I think that the lighting could have been better. The sound's okay for this level of film, but the CG effects of this just basically scribbling black mist over the entity, it's cheap but effective. I mean, all you need is that and a few CGI flies as well, and the sound of flies. And you're good. So yeah, this entity has attacked her. Yet she is not believed, and they are, people are going out of their way to try and prove that she's making it up. Even her own sister is doing it to her. I mean, her sister, Angela Gullner, bought into the whole suburban fantasy, you know, the white picket fence, all that kind of thing. She's got a good job as a realtor, whereas Emma Fitzpatrick is a struggling artist who's only just had her first gallery show. And she's had mental issues and substance abuse issues in the past. And she's posting everything online. So, yeah, she's probably doing it for the publicity. But, I mean, I think this is an interesting aspect of the film. And it's a a trend I've noticed a lot recently in films like Sissy and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies and Vengeance. The idea that so much of a young person's life is now lived online. Instead of going to therapy, I mean, at one point, Emma Fitzpatrick outright rejects the idea of going to therapy. Instead, she's posting these live streams online, which, yes, on the one hand, might actually be helpful, might actually be cathartic to talk about, but equally could be seen simply as attention-seeking behaviour. So where's the line? Is there a line? And there's all these little things which build up to make it seem from the outside like, yes, she might be making it up. And this is where the allegory comes in, because the simple fact of just not being believed, even by your own sister, by the authorities, nobody is believing you, so you need to take back the night. You need to fight back yourself. And I do like the fact that inevitably there is a confrontation between Emma Fitzpatrick and this entity. And I like the fact that Emma Fitzpatrick doesn't kick ass. She does not suddenly turn into Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She is terrified out of her mind and trying her best to defend herself, not kicking ass and taking names. And I really, really like that. So. There's so much of this film which I think is worthy of note. I think it is very impressive. And that includes the fact that I realised that nobody in this film has a character name. The protagonist, Emma Fitzpatrick, is only ever known as her Instagram handle, Jane Doe Does. Jane Doe, you know, an anonymous person. And the other characters are the sister, the detective, 
the reporter. That's all they're ever known as. And we never see on screen, we never hear on screen what their names are. So, I mean, making it as universal as possible. I also realised partway through the film that we don't see any men on screen. Or at least not full frontal. On the very brief occasions there are male characters on screen, we only ever see them from the back. We only ever see them for a few seconds. And there's also a couple of situations where there is a voice of a man. For instance, the person giving the polygraph test at the opening of the film is a man. So, everybody on screen is a woman. Even the creature is played by a woman, Karina Kinnear. The only times we see men on screen, it's from the back for a few seconds, and we occasionally hear a man, but everybody else on screen is a woman. And that was a really, really interesting choice, I thought. So, yeah, I mean, there's choices were made, which I think make the film an interesting experience, an interesting experiment. And I was so ready to praise this film, to give it a strong recommendation. But at the end of the day, I can't quite do it. It's one of those frustrating films where the overwhelming majority of it, I was really on board with, I really think, yes, this is a great idea. I mean, yes, it's cheap. We know it's cheap. We know it's cheap going in, but it's good. It's got some great ideas in it. But the ending, I have issues with. There's a revelation made about a secondary character towards the end of the film, and I understand why this revelation was made. It brings up the idea of a code of silence. and. The idea that female inaction against being attacked, being the victims of aggression, that code of silence is so ingrained that it just keeps perpetuating itself. And there are people out there who are exploiting and or repressing these things for their own ends. So that was a good idea, and I understand why it was done, but it raises, in my mind, a massive plot hole. And it's not the kind of fridge plot hole that you you sort of come back from the cinema and two hours later you're getting your drink out of the fridge, you think, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. I mean, as it was happening, I was thinking, wait a minute, how did that happen? And also, the place where the main character ends up I think was unnecessarily extreme. So there's a big plot hole which I recognised as it was happening. And I also don't really like the extremity of the place that the main character finds herself in at the end of the film. So unfortunately, I have enough of a problem with the ending that I can't wholeheartedly recommend it. I think this is a film which has some great ideas, some very interesting decisions going into the structure of it, like having no character names and 
essentially having no men on screen. Interesting experimental filmmaking, but the ending ticks it just under a full-on recommendation. I still basically recommend Take Back the Night. I still think it's more or less worth watching, but yeah, I can't give it my full-throated support because just a couple of little issues with the end. But in general, Take Back the Night, which is available on various VOD platforms, is for me a high but flawed meh. Netflix Reviews Rainbow is a Spanish film available on Netflix and is written and directed by Paco Liar, who is much better known as an actor. He was the star of a long-running sitcom in Spain called Aida, where he played the brother of the titular character played by Carmen Machi, who appears in this film Rainbow. He also appeared in the Netflix series The House of Flowers and had a significant supporting role in Nicolas Cage's film The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. But Paco Leon has also doubled in directing. He's done a couple of low-budget semi-autobiographical films which starred his mother and his sister and has now gone over to Netflix in order to direct this film Rainbow which is loosely inspired by The Wizard of Oz. On her 16th birthday, a young girl, Dora, played by Dora Postigo, confronts her father and says, The time has come, I want to find my mother, who abandoned me when I was a child. So she runs away from her father with her little dog Toto in tow, to the only place she thinks she can start this quest, which is a nearby cosmetics company, which has some family connection to her. She manages to sneak into this family-run cosmetics company and manages to overhear the matriarch of the family, Carmen Maurer, conspire with her assistant slash girlfriend i'm not exactly sure what the relationship is but carmen mara is conspiring with carmen machi in order to murder her husband who is very ill and on life support and all that kind of stuff and carmen mara just wants to switch the ventilator off and take control of the company this is overheard by dora postigo And when Kamamara actually does it, she is framed essentially for murder. So needs to run away and go to Capital City in order to try and find her mother. Pursued by the police, which have been set on her by Kamamara and Kamamachi. And along the way, she manages to pick up an eccentric young man who she finds chained up half-naked in a junkyard, played by Ajax Pedrosa, a suicidal one-legged businessman, played by Louis Bermajo, and an African immigrant who has been ostracised for his community because he's queer, and also occasionally turns into a lion, played by Wakafore Jibrel. So with these 
eclectic mix of people accompanying her and people pursuing her for what she knows and what she might be, Dora Postigo goes on a quest to try and find her mother. The way I see this film Rainbow is somewhat similar to the way I personally reacted to the Coen brothers' Oh Brother Where Art Thou. That was supposed to be an homage or inspired by Homer's The Odyssey. But if you didn't know that, as far as I was concerned, you couldn't really see it. Or at least that's how I felt at the time. I mean, maybe if I watched it now, I might have a different reaction to it. But while there are some loose connections to The Wizard of Oz, I mean, this woman, Carmen Mara, who has essentially killed her husband in order to take over his cosmetics company, a cosmetics company who has the corporate colour green. I mean, everything is green in this cosmetics company, including a green face mask, which Carmen Mara wears at one point, which I thought was kind of cute. But yes, she is essentially the Wicked Witch of the West. But unless you know that, you can't really see it. I mean, yes, you can argue that this guy chained up in the junkyard is the Scarecrow. I mean, the character's name is Muñeco, which basically means puppet. The Tin Man, this suicidal businessman, don't really see. And then the Lion, obviously this African immigrant occasionally turns into a lion, apparently. But cowardly, I'm not really sure. So, unless you know, I don't think you could pick it up. And there's also a situation where you know, a quote-unquote yellow brick road is essentially a, a beaten earth and sun-baked yellow path through some fields. And yet, yeah, fair enough. And eventually, Muñeco uh, Ajax Pedrosa basically doses everybody and gives them drugs, and everybody goes on a trip, and then they see a yellow brick road, and on screen we have massive sort of googly eyes as this is happening. So... Yeah, there's bits here and there which do kind of fit into that. But really, I don't think it comes together very well. Uh, and there's some eccentric and extravagant things which go on. I mean, Dora Postigo has this relationship to music. When she listens to music, the world around her starts choreographing to what she's listening to. I mean, it's a little bit like those sequences in... Edgar Wright's film Baby Driver. I mean, there's a scene early in the film where she's roller skating along, and I, I think it's possibly significant that these are vintage roller skates rather than rollerblades. But she's roller skating along with her little dog Toto on a lead behind her, and in her headphones, she's listening to this music, and everything around her is choreographing itself to the music, which she notices and thinks it's a bit weird. She takes her headphones off, and everything goes back to normal. But this happens a couple of times throughout the course of the film. I mean, the first time they come across this African immigrant, Wakaboyere Jabril, it's at a migrant camp. I mean, these are probably illegal immigrants who are there to pick fruit. I mean, the fruit economy of Western Europe is essentially dependent on illegal African immigrants going into Spain. But anyway, there's all these African immigrants uh, and you know they're hungry, they need something to sing, and you know, these white people go into this African 
setting and you know they're stared at initially but gradually welcomed in and there's this choreographed synced performance to the music that Dora Postigo is listening to and yeah those sequences are, are kind of interesting and eventually the you know, the big climax happens at a huge and lavish party that Carmen Maurer is holding saying look I am taking over this cosmetics company. I'm going to take it into a grand new state. I mean, this is you know her her crowning moment, but of course she's evil, so she's also trying to get rid of people. And this party is full of glittery grotesques. These are rich people who are sinking themselves into hedonism, who are almost not human anymore. <laughs> And yeah, I think Paco Leon is trying to make a point about the types of people who would go to this type of party. And yeah, it's interesting seeing all these fabulously attired but empty people going to this party. And those empty people also include Rossi De Palma, who has a cameo in this film as the primary model for this cosmetics brand but it's essentially a cameo for pedro modeval's muse but yeah it was cool seeing rossi de palma as a model in this but anyway what we have here as far as i'm concerned is a bunch of ideas some of them interesting some of them clever most of them just random shiny images and they don't quite all fit together properly I think Rainbow ultimately is a film where a lot of stuff happens and you can see a lot of stuff but whether that comes together as a coherent whole whether there's actually anything in this at all I'm really not sure there is so yeah some really interesting visuals a couple of interesting ideas but ultimately I don't think Rainbow is especially worth it. So you can find it on Netflix, but for me, it's a pretty low. Bah. And then we come to Blonde, which, when it was announced, was seen as something of an Oscar contender, particularly for Best Actress for Anna de Armas. But the responses to this film have not been good. But. In case Anna de Armas does get an Oscar nomination, I felt the need to watch it, and it's on Netflix, so I just click the button. It is directed by Andrew Dominic, the Australian director who first came to prominence with the Australian film Chopper, which not only introduced Andrew Dominic to the world, it also introduced Eric Banner to the world. Seven years after Chopper, he did The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and five years after that, he did the barely remembered Killing Them Softly. But since 2012, he's not done a great deal. He's done a couple of documentaries with his friend Nick Cave. He's done a couple of episodes of the Netflix series Mindhunter. But now he is back to a feature-length film with this film, Blonde which is a fictionalised biopic of Marilyn Monroe and is based on a novel of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates. 
Anna de Armas plays Norma Jean Baker, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe, who grows up mostly in foster care because she doesn't have a father and her mother, Julianne Nicholson, is committed to an asylum. But she grows up and wants to break into Hollywood. So she splits her time between somewhat shady photo shoots and learning the method in Los Angeles alongside dilettante second-generation actors Eddie Robinson Jr., played by Evan Williams, and Cass Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin Jr., played by Xavier Samuel. She gets her big break via the casting couch and eventually develops into the iconic blonde bombshell that everybody knows and loves Marilyn Monroe for being. But Marilyn Monroe, the thing that has been created, is not necessarily the person, and the icon, the image, is so much more important than the actual person. And that includes what happens when she gets married to a couple of different rather famous people, a retired baseball player played by Bobby Cannavale, and an intellectual New York playwright played by Adrian Brody. And all the time that Marilyn's meteoric rise to fame is happening, the person is crippled by anxiety and really just wants to act. She is constantly name-dropping Chekhov. She is desperate to learn the method. She wants to embrace the new way of acting. But she's essentially not allowed to because she's Marilyn. She's the blonde bombshell. But all she really wants is to be loved. And a source of this love seems to come from a series of letters she receives from her father, who she has never met, doesn't even know the identity of. Her mentally unstable mother pointed at a picture at one point and said, that's your father, but that's as far as it ever went. But she does receive these letters. And they are a source of comfort as well as a source of concern for Marilyn. And towards the end of her life, she gets more and more into drugs. She gets more and more anxious. She's essentially used as a sexual puppet by the president, played by Casper Philipson. And it all ends rather badly. So this film has been very, very controversial. There are a lot of people who have complained about the portrayal of Marilyn Monroe, focusing so much on the victimhood of Marilyn Monroe that they're kind of ignoring the person of Norma Jean Baker and making rather facetious and rather direct causal links between a couple of aspects of her life and her dependence on pills and eventual death, and the exploitation of this person, this woman. There is a scene of rape in this, essentially. 
the casting couch is portrayed in an incredibly matter-of-fact way. She is shuffled into the office of Mr. Zed, who is Daryl F. Zanuck, who was head of 20th Century Fox at the time, and essentially invented the casting couch by all accounts. And after this audition in front of the head of the studio, she's just forced down onto her knees, bent over, and raped. And that's just what happened. She ends up in this somewhat polyamorous relationship with these layabout second-generation actors, Eddie Robinson Jr. and Cass Chaplin. And in the course of that, she has an abortion. And this is problematic in a couple of different ways. Firstly. The idea of having an abortion for the sake of your career, I mean, yes, she is very, very conflicted about having an abortion, but she does have it. Arguably, it's forced on her, but I mean, that's a grey area. But also the way it has been portrayed on screen, with the unborn fetus talking to her. There have been campaigners who have protested against this film as an anti-abortion film, and I absolutely see their point. And the way that this abortion is dealt with, and there are a couple of other miscarriages slash abortions during the course of the film, and all of these fetuses talk to her. There's even one towards the end of the film after her interactions with the president, where it's kind of a dream sequence. I mean, she's so out of it on pills that maybe it's happening, maybe it isn't, where essentially she's kidnapped and an abortion is forced upon her. So I think the film is having its cake and eating it, and probably the original novel by Joyce Carol Oates, buying into the conspiracy theories about what JFK did to Marilyn Monroe, but laughing it off, oh, it's just a dream. But either way, there are several times throughout the course of this film where Marilyn is pregnant, but she never gives birth to a baby. And all of these fetuses talk to her, and that is just such a delicate thing that you did not need to do in this film, particularly when you also have scenes which amount to rape, where you also have a very mechanical sexual interaction with JFK, where Marilyn Monroe is brought all the way across the country treated like a piece of meat and then told her, all right, go back home after, you know, one blowjob where she's been called a slut and a whore. And yeah, it's just really, really exploitative. And it makes the direct causal link that her lack of being able to have a child, particularly when, you know, she has a miscarriage with Arthur Miller. And it's also interesting I mean, similarly, to take back the night I was talking about a little bit earlier, nobody is given a name in this. Daryl F. Zanuck is Mr. Z, and he's just in one scene. The ex-athlete is Joe DiMaggio, but he's only listed in the credits as the ex-athlete. The playwright is Arthur Miller, but he is only listed as the playwright. The president is JFK, but he is only listed as the president. And 
it, it, she's just an object floating through all these lives. But her lack of being able to carry a child to term, and particularly when she has a miscarriage when she's married to Adrian Brody, this is seen as a direct causal link of her absolute dependence on barbiturates towards the end of her life, combined with her daddy issues. I mean, she never knew her father. She has this image on the wall. And these letters that she keeps getting from her father, I mean, you just know that this is not going to end well. And I think those letters are a dramatic contrivance too far. Yes, it does fold into the themes of the film and her lack of a stable, loving environment, the lack of a father figure. It's notable that when she's married to Bobby Cannavale, she calls him daddy. And I thought, okay, you can play that off as an in-joke because the first time that they meet together and you know a an engagement is taking place which on bobby cannavale's part seems more like a transaction than any genuine affection or love you know i am famous you are famous let's be famous together rather than i love you but there's a misunderstanding and anna de armas calls bobby cannavale daddy so i thought okay that's a, a cute in joke possibly but then when she's married to Adrian Brody and she's still calling her husband daddy, that's an issue. And these letters always, you know, stringing her along saying, you know, I will meet you eventually. Someday we will be together and just stringing her along and stringing her along and stringing her along. And you just know that this is not going to end well. And, and it is such a dramatic contrivance. I did not buy that for a second and there's that also contributes to a direct causal link to the tragedies at the end of her life and i just don't buy it this is trashy this is exploitative it's confusing i mean it, it flits about in time you know having these two different aspects of the personality i mean norma jean baker who loves method acting and chekhov and marilyn monroe who's just the ditzy sex symbol there's an extended sequence with that famous scene from the Seven Year Itch where she's having her dress blown up by the subway grate. That goes on for a while. So, yes, it's trying to make a point about exploitation, but in and of itself, it is exploitation. So, it feels uncomfortable putting it in the film. It flits between black and white and colour with seemingly no rhyme or reason. It's just random, as far as I can tell. I mean, I thought it was possibly, you know, Black and white is Marilyn and colour is Norma Jean or one or the other. But no, it just seems to be random. So it's a mess. It's also incredibly long. It did not need to be this long. It's nearly three hours in length. And what are we doing? Marilyn Monroe did have a fascinating life. And yes, she was exploited. Yes, she was a very, very troubled person. But we did not need to sink ourselves into the deprivation so hard that in America, this film got an NC-17 rating, which is almost unheard of in modern cinema. 
but yes, it's primarily released onto Netflix, but it needs to play in cinemas for the Oscar qualifying run, and it was given an NC-17 rating, which is almost unheard of. We did not need to be this trashy. We did not need to be this exploitative. You could have a perfectly good portrayal of the complexities of Marilyn Monroe's life without all this happening. For example, My Week with Marilyn, where Michelle Williams played Marilyn Monroe exceptionally well. That is a great film. Blonde is not. It's long, it's exploitative, it's trashy, it makes no sense. Anna de Armas is kind of good. I mean, maybe she'll end up with one of my personal Oscar nominations for Best Actress. Maybe she'll get an actual nomination for Best Actress, but I wouldn't say she's a strong contender. So, honestly, I just don't think there's any reason to watch Marilyn. It is on Netflix. You can just click the button. But Blonde, I don't think is worth it. And for me, it is a nay. Amazon Prime Reviews Catherine Called Birdie is the latest film written and directed by Lena Dunham, who is best known for the TV show Girls, which she starred in and created. But she hasn't made a feature film since 2010 with Tiny Furniture, a micro-budget independent film which did well enough at the festival circuit, it got her a her deal with HBO to get to make Girls. So Lena Dunham has not made a film for 10 odd years, and this is actually one of two films which Lena Dunham had out this year. She had another film called Sharp Stick, which premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. But as time of recording doesn't have any UK distribution, but Catherine called Birdie got made for Amazon Prime. And she made this film basically because she was such a fan of the original novel. Catherine called Birdie was a YA novel written by Karen Cushman, which apparently Lena Dunham loved when she was a girl and she wanted to adapt. And why not? I mean, <laughs> that kind of thing really should happen more often where a filmmaker just gets the rights to a book they love. And that's what Lena Dunham did. It is 1292 in Lincolnshire, England. And Catherine, who is nicknamed Birdie because she has many pet birds, is being played by Bella Ramsey from Game of Thrones and the forthcoming Last of Us adaptation. She is a free-spirited, intelligent 14-year-old girl who is the daughter of the manor of Stonebridge, but instead of being all ladylike like she should be, she's much more happy hanging out in the mud with her friend Perkin the Goat Boy, played by Michael Wolfett. She has a sweet, kind mother, played by Billy Piper, who has been worn down by many, many pregnancies. She has three surviving children, but that's only a fraction of the pregnancies she's had. And a good-natured but kind of buffoonish father, played by Andrew Scott, who unfortunately is such a spendthrift that 
the manor is in dire financial straits. And the only way that the manor can survive is if they get a dowry for Catherine's marriage. This is something that Bella Ramsey does not want in the slightest, so she makes it her mission to sabotage any suitors that might come a-calling, with the assistance of Michael Wolfitt, the goat boy, and her best friend Lady Alice, played by Isis Hainsworth from Metal Lords. But things get complicated when both Isis Hainsworth and Bella Ramsey both find themselves attracted to Bella Ramsey's uncle, who is just back from the Crusades, played by Joe Alwyn, the dashing, handsome knight. But he too is obligated by the conventions of marriage in the period, and he gets married off to local noblewoman Sophie Okanedo. And eventually, Bella Ramsey's schemes have their comeuppance when a suitor comes calling, Shaggy Beard, played by Paul Kay, who, no matter what Bella Ramsey does, still wants to get married to her. So, how is all of this going to work out? Will Bella Ramsey end up getting married to Shaggy Beard? Will her friendship with the goat boy and her best friend survive? What is life like for a girl in Middle Ages England? I did enjoy this film. This is a lot of fun. Catherine Called Birdie is an entertaining film, a sometimes thought-provoking film, even though I've had a look at the Wikipedia page for the original Karen Cushman novel, and it does look like Lena Dunham has ramped up the comedy from the original book and also polished off some of the rough edges. It seems like there's a little bit more death in the original novel than there is in this film adaptation. And also in this film adaptation, there's a little bit too much inclusivity for my tastes. I mean, there's a subplot involving the acceptance of queerness, which I absolutely don't buy in the Middle Ages, but you kind of have to have that kind of thing in a modern film adaptation, as I mean, there is colourblind casting as well. And one of those colourblind performers, Sophie Okanedo, I'm not sure if this was in the original script or if it's something that Lena Dunham directed, but it seems to me that Sophie Okanedo is playing her character as bipolar, which I think was an interesting choice, but it does fit in with the general themes of the film. But yeah, the ideas of a 14-year-old girl growing up and learning about the world, one of the very early scenes is Bella Ramsey talking to her nursemaid, played by Leslie Sharp, and saying, yo, I know where babies come from now, I'm ready for the agonies and the terrors of childbearing. And when she describes what she thinks pregnancy is, it's actually kind of funny and you know, a 14-year-old not understanding the world. So there's all this kind of growing up stuff and having you know, the best friend, Isis Hainsworth, having a crush on your uncle, Joe Alwyn, which 
let's face it, is a little bit creepy. Starting to understand that Billy Piper, her mother, who loves her dearly, and she is loved in return, understanding and she's starting to understand that so many pregnancies, sooner or later, her mother is just going to die from it. And also starting to understand marriage and the idea that in the Middle Ages and all throughout history until very, very recently, comparatively, marriage was a transaction and it's all about the land you can gain or the titles you can gain. It's not ever about love. And being forced into marriage with this much older and kind of scuzzy suitor Paul K. Sometimes you're just going to have to put up with that kind of stuff, and it's it's uncomfortable to see you know, the the types of lives that these fourteen year old girls or or fourteen year old children in general would have had in the Middle Ages. And yeah, yeah, there's something to that, and it's fun, it's entertaining, it's occasionally thought provoking, it's occasionally informative, but it does have those elements of the coming-of-age story, of the shifting and changing developments with your best friend, Isis Haysworth, with your annoying sibling, Dean Charles Chapman, and all these relationships which are subtly shifting and changing. And the relationships which are subtly shifting and changing. I mean, Andrew Scott is in a situation he doesn't really want to essentially sell off his 14-year-old daughter, but he kind of sees it as his only option. And I I think it's significant that of all the relationships in this film, the only one that seems reasonably healthy and actual love... I should know there's one... There's a marriage towards the end which looks like it's a love match, but... Throughout the majority of the film, the only loving marriage is the one between Andrew Scott and Billy Piper. I mean, yes, Billy Piper has had far too many pregnancies, but they're still kind of into each other. I mean, there's an early scene where Bella Ramsey walks into her parents' bedroom and they seem to be in the middle of something. And there's a scene later in the film where they sneak off from a banquet, seemingly to get intimate with each other. So they still love each other. They're still into each other even with you know the problems of the pregnancies. So that kind of loving relationship is possible, and that's what Birdie aspires to. But it's just not going to happen. You know, <laughs> the, the environment in which Birdie is living, that is just not possible. The likelihood of you having a marriage you are content with, a marriage you can even grow to love, is so, so small that that's just the way things are and and i do like certain choices that were made in this film there's a certain type of trailer music which if you know to look for it it's very very prominent what happens quite often is you have a well-known song and you get a female vocalist to cover it and really, really slow it down. There's musicians out there who specifically do this so their music will be licensed for trailers. I mean, it's turned into a mini-industry of its own. 
And that attitude is presented in Catherine Called Birdie with lots of covers of well-known tracks. But as well as being a female vocalist, they hired a woman called Misty Miller, who in the past was signed to Sony, but nowadays is an independent singer-songwriter from South London. But they got Misty Miller to do these covers of well-known tracks, and they also got her to use medieval instrumentation. And I have to say that Misty Miller's version of Elastica's Connection, which is in this film, is really, really cool. And you know what? I'm going to play it at the end of the track. I mean, I'm already breaking copyright by using the Pearl and Dean music at the intro, so I may as well play you Misty Miller's version of Connection at the end of this podcast, because I think it's really, really cool. And you know, it adds to the, the modern but ancient feel of this film. And the ways that this film develops itself, the ideas of having, yes, the comedy, but also a little bit of the darkness. I mean, when it looks like Bella Ramsey will have to be married off, she flings herself back on her bed and says, I ripen like a peach for plucking which is kind of a dark line. But, you know, that's the situation she finds herself in. I mean, she's a 14-year-old girl, you know, just exploring the world. And, yeah, it's it's got a mix of stuff. And, yeah, in general, I think this is a film which is suitable for many ages. I think it's generally acceptable for a teen audience. I think it's a family-friendly film. In places, it is very, very funny. In places, this is thought-provoking. Occasionally, it gets a little bit dark, although apparently not quite as dark as the book. But yeah, I think it's a very entertaining film. You can find Catherine Coolbirdie on Amazon Prime, and for me, it is a very high, very entertaining meh. Next up, we have 13 Lies the latest film from Ron Howard and one of many, many projects based on the Pam Luong cave rescue in 2018. This is the second feature film about the cave rescue. There was an Irish film in 2019 almost immediately after the rescue happened using some of the same divers. Very low budget, and but it does exist. There's a Netflix narrative miniseries. There's a Netflix documentary miniseries. And there was also the documentary done last year by the same people who did Free Solo. So many, many projects have been made about the Thai cave rescue. And now Ron Howard's had a go for Amazon Prime. This is the narrative using the rights of the divers who went into the Tam Luong Cave. The two main divers, Rick Stanton and John Volenthen, are played by Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell, who were extensively interviewed in Chai Vasaheli and Jimmy Chin's The Rescue, the National Geographic documentary from last year. But they get called to the far north of Thailand, very near the Myanmar border, where a group of 
young footballers go exploring in a cave system, but the unexpectedly early monsoon rains trap them in a flooded cave, and how the hell are they going to be got out? And an international group of divers, alongside the Thai Navy SEALs, attempt to dive in these flooded caves and bring these boys out. But how is this almost impossible feat going to be achieved, given that they're six hours into the cave? I mean, it's a journey of about six hours to dive through these flooded caves in order to get to these boys. And how are you going to get their boys and their coach out? And this is the story of how it was done. A couple of weeks ago, I reviewed the Netflix comedy horror film Day Shift. And I said of that film that the one thing that that film did exceptionally well was the fight choreography, the fight scenes. Unsurprising, since it was directed by a stunt coordinator, But I kind of feel the same way about this film, 13 Lives, and it's a weird comparison to make. But in my opinion, 13 Lives does one thing exceptionally well. And that is the scenes of these people diving in the caves. You know that these people get out. I mean, it was worldwide news in 2018. As I said, there's been so many documentaries and narrative stories about this story. We know that everybody survived. I mean, the title of the film is 13 Lives. We know it's going to end up okay. Yet still, you feel the tension. You feel the drama. You feel the claustrophobia. It's actually a little bit like uh, Damien Chazelle's First Man. You know that Neil Armstrong came back from the moon. But the way that Damon Chazelle shot in that capsule, in that lunar module, the tension, the drama, I mean, is he going to be okay? Will he survive? It was still there. And the claustrophobia and the drama and the tension of these cave divers, I mean, slowly, ever so gradually moving their way through these flooded caves, the drama and the tension and the claustrophobia is ramped up to the max. I mean, the imagery is really well done with these divers inching their way through the caves. And the sound design, I also think, is outstanding, with the rushing water of these flooded caves, the oxygen flowing, you know, know, the sound of a scuba tank, the tanks scraping against the rocks. I mean, it is so narrow in certain places. I mean, it's such a specific thing to do, you know, the cave diving, that... It's a very, very specific set of skills. The Thai Navy SEALs are doing their best, but they're used to open water. They're not used to diving through caves, and it's well publicised that during the course of this cave rescue, one of the Thai Navy SEALs did die, and the film is dedicated to him, and another Thai Navy SEAL who died a year later of a blood infection which was contracted during this rescue. So this is incredibly dangerous stuff. And yet these 13 boys were okay. Thanks to the fact that another cave diver that Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell know is an Australian doctor played by Joel Edgerton who sedates them and then brings them out, which is just such an insane thing to even attempt. And yet that's how it was done. I mean, it's absolutely insane. The overwhelming 
assumption is that not everybody is going to survive. We are not going to get all 13 of these people out of this cave. In fact, Viggo Mortensen is kind of a, has a fatalistic attitude. You know, if I don't think we can come out, I'm not going in. And that's just the way things are. So we have to accept that in all likelihood, some of these people are going to die. Uh, and that's just the way he has to deal with it, because you know, it, it's such a dangerous thing to do, uh, which makes it all the more remarkable that they were successfully saved, and everybody who was initially trapped came out safe and secure and survived. It's a remarkable story of heroism, it's a remarkable story of survival, and it's done in a reasonably engaging way. I mean, like I said, I think the one thing that this film does well is the claustrophobia, the drama, the tension of you know, being trapped underwater in this cave. But I felt basically the same thing, and, and if it was documentary footage, they kind of filmed it in the documentary The Rescue by Chai Vasahalyi and Jimmy Chin. So I, I don't think this necessarily adds anything to the story that wasn't in The Rescue. And occasionally it's kind of distracting because it's very odd hearing both Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell speak with very southeast sort of estuary English accents and argue with each other about custard creams. Do they even have custard creams in America? Will people get that reference? I don't know, but it's a very, very English thing to do. So, yeah. This is. An extraordinary story, and I think it deserves to be told, it deserves to be understood. But more than anything, I think this is a somewhat workmanlike film. Of the stories about the Tam Luong cave rescue that I've seen, I would recommend the documentary, the National Geographic documentary, The Rescue, by Elizabeth Chai Vasahalyi and Jimmy Chin. There are as I said, two miniseries available on Netflix right now. One documentary, one narrative. And you can probably find that Irish film from 2019 as well, which I think has been re-released as Cave Rescue recently. So, yeah, there's plenty of material out there if you want to really delve into it. But, yeah, I mean, this is a solid, sometimes tense, sometimes thrilling film. It passes the time well, and for me, 13 Lives, available on Amazon Prime, is a solid meh. Sky Cinema Reviews The Immaculate Room is a low-budget American indie film which has got picked up for distribution by Sky Cinema. And since it looked kind of interesting and I could just click the button and watched it, I did check it out on my Skybox. It is directed by the South African director, Makunda Michael DeWill, who about 10 years ago did a couple of films in South Africa, including one which was one of the last films completed by Paul Walker, but has since moved to the United States 
And The Immaculate Room is apparently one of three films that Macunda Michael DeWille has worked on in 2022. All of them seemingly at this very small scale end of the spectrum. The film stars Emil Hirsch and Kate Bosworth as a couple who have accepted a rather extreme challenge. If they can stay 50 days in the Immaculate Room, a completely contained, completely white room, with no external stimuli, no nothing, they will win $5 million. So the question is, can they survive 50 days in this completely white room? Can they survive each other for 50 days? Or will the paranoia and the selfishness get in the way? Has anybody seen Treasures of the Sierra Madre? Apparently these two haven't because they accept this challenge and of course the shit is going to hit the fan. So what is going to happen to these two people as they enter the Immaculate Room? I can't help feeling that Macunda Michael DeWille didn't do enough research before considering this film. I'm betting that this was a COVID movie. You have one set, two actors, and eventually there's a third actress who enters the story played by Ashley Green Curry. So three actors, one room. I'm betting this was done during COVID. But I don't think it was actually thought through very well. It's been long established that total isolation, sensory deprivation, being placed in solitary confinement, quickly has a very, very drastic effect on your mental health. If you spent 50 days in a completely white room with no external stimuli, you would end up psychotic. And the film does not address that factor at all. Instead, it tries to make points about this relationship, about the dynamics of the relationship. I mean, it's very pointedly stated early in the film that these two are together, but they are not engaged. They seem to have very different personality types. There's a discussion very early in the film. It's basically the first discussion they have as soon as they get into the film, is, you know, we should split the money. What are you going to do with your half of the money? Again, has anybody seen Treasures of the Sierra Madre? But, you know, Kate Bosworth says, you know, I'm going to save it. I'm going to invest it. And Emil Hirsch says, no, I'm an artist, damn it. I want to not worry about money so I can make real art that doesn't care if it offends middle America. I want to be confrontational. I want to be provocative. I can be a real artist, damn it. So, you know, the practical side and the flamboyant side, and it also throughout the course of the film emerges that one of the reasons for this is Kate Bosworth grew up very, very poor, and Emil Hirsch comes from a privileged background. So they have very, very different ideas as to what this money can do and will mean. 
And yeah, there's some kind of interesting dynamics that are going on there. But I don't think they're really explored very well. And in places, the exposition is incredibly blunt. There's one brief moment where they do have external stimuli. I mean, this is before the third person shows up in the room. Each of them have a message from the outside world, and Kate Bosworth has a message from her father, played by the legendary actor M. Emmett Walsh, and Emil Hirsch has a message from his sister, played by Alex Scambati. Each of these two messages reveal very, very specific and very, very disturbing things about these people and about their relationships to the outside world. And it just gets really, really obvious. I mean, Kate Bosworth is this way because of her relationship with her father. Emil Walsh is this way because of his relationship with his family and his sister and you know the, the traumas in his background. I mean, how I can't talk about it. It's just so blunt, so obvious. And... All throughout the course of the film, there are questions that really, really should be asked and aren't being asked or answered. I mean, yes, these two people have agreed to this $5 million challenge, which is being financed by this billionaire who has more money than sense is just throwing money away like candy. So they've accepted this. They know that there is $5 million at the end of this because Emil Hirsch tells an anecdote about this same guy did another experiment where he gave an ordinary middle American family $150 million, made them insanely famous overnight, you know, through Instagram and all that kind of stuff, to see what would happen. And of course, it utterly, utterly destroyed their lives. Emil Hirsch knows this has happened to another family who was in you know, the Machiavellian schemes of this mysterious billionaire, and yet he still signed up for the Immaculate Room. Why? You know that this guy has done some really, really shady stuff in the past and just throwing money at stuff to see everything explode, and yet you are still doing this Immaculate Room challenge? That makes absolutely no sense. There's also extra things which get brought into the Immaculate Room and not just this extra person, Ashley Green Curry, towards the end of the film. But early in the film, there's a cockroach which shows up in the Immaculate Room. Where did the cockroach come from? And also one day they wake up and there's a gun on the bedside table. Surely you should ask questions. I mean, what does this mysterious billionaire intend for us to do with this gun? Why are you not asking so many more questions? Quite apart from the psychological trauma that 50 days in isolation would give these people, genuine psychosis is basically the only outcome for this kind of scenario. If you ignore that completely, even the psychological insight into these characters as they're progressing through these 50 days, I don't buy for a second. And it tries to go for extremity, it tries to go for the outlandish, the outrageous, the extreme. 
but then it really, really cops out at the ending. If it wanted to go for the extremes of this scenario, it should have just gone for it. Instead, it cops out, it polishes the end, it's a much softer, much cleaner, much more watered-down ending than I think this film deserves. So, yeah, I think this is one of those films that needed a lot more development. It needed a lot more careful thinking, careful consideration, really examining every aspect of this story rather than just say, let's put two actors together and I'm sure we can come up with some good stuff in a completely white room. And yeah, they kind of do, but as I said, it's very, very obvious stuff, blunt exposition. It just ends up not working. It's not good. I mean, I can understand why this didn't get more widespread distribution and it's ended up just dumped onto Sky Cinema. The Immaculate Room is not good. You can find it on Sky Cinema. No doubt at some point it will be on VOD platforms as well, but I just don't think it's worth it. And for me, The Immaculate Room is a nay. The Two Watch List Since I'm recording this episode so closely after my last one, I mean, (laughs) as soon as I finished uploading and releasing the last cinematic episode, I started recording this one. My to-watch list has not changed at all. I'm still going to the cinema this week to watch the film Bros, Barbarian and Triangle of Sadness. And my highest priority on the streaming end of things is the Andrew Reesborough starring Ghost Story here before, which I've got saved onto my tablet. And the Oscar Beatty films on streaming platforms, Raymond and Ray through Apple TV+, and the German film All Quiet on the Western Front, and the animation Wendell and Wilde, both on Netflix. Those are my highest priorities as things stand, and that will most likely make up at least some of the next couple of episodes. Although there's a chance that once again the next streaming episode will be some while into the future, because now that the London Film Festival has finished, the Film Bath Festival is just about to start, and I have many, many screenings at the Film Bath Festival to attend, as well as a couple of screenings at the Africa Eye Film Festival in Bristol. So yeah, many more festival screenings to attend, which will probably delay the next streaming episode, So, yeah, it might well be a very, very long streaming episode next time, I guess, around to recording one. But hopefully the next thing in this feed will be the cinematic edition reviewing Bros, Barbarian and Triangle of Sadness. So that brings me to the end of the show. And as I promised a little bit earlier, I will be ending this particular episode with the cover version of Elastica's Connection which was done by Misty Miller for the soundtrack of Catherine called Birdie. Given my age, I was right there for the Britpop generation, and Connection by Elastica is genuinely one of my absolute favourite songs ever. So I was quite surprised when I heard, hang on a minute, is that Connection? 
And then the lyrics started, and it was all done in this medieval style. Uh, and yeah, I, I really, really like this cover of Connection, which is why I'm playing it at the end of this show. So that is how this particular episode will end. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.